and then we will start. All right, uh, so what I'm going to be doing today is talking about an article that I wrote that was published in the Daily Beast uh, yesterday. Uh, the title of the article is The Left Needs a Better Message on Crime. Uh, and it kind of distills a lot of what I've been thinking about in this issue for a while now. Uh, and anybody who's seen my show on YouTube in the last couple of years will have heard parts of this at one time or another, but this is the first time I've written an article that's like specifically about this. And so I wanted to go over it and uh, give anybody who wanted to ask questions or make devastated objections or just uh, give me a hard time about the take uh, or, uh, you know, tell me about other things that might be related that they're thinking about a chance to do that afterwards. So Anytime while I'm talking, go ahead and get in the caller queue, and when there's a sort of good point to do so, I will start taking calls. Um, so the you know the news hook of the article was talking about the midterm elections and the role that uh, these issues about criminal justice and public safety played in there. Um, so obviously, you know the big takeaway that people had. Uh, from uh, from from the overall shape of what happened was that it was you know way better than you might expect um, from a progressive point of view. That obviously the you know Democrats suck, but you don't want the people who suck even more uh, to uh, to come to power. And for many months, everybody, very much including the Republicans themselves, have been confidently predicting a red wave. Uh, Joe Rogan, who I like, but who should have more leftists on, because you know the fact that he said this. I think shows that uh, that he uh, has too many conservatives on, uh, so by being too much of uh, of their view of things, said that the the red wave was going to be like the scene where the elevator doors open in The Shining, which is a nice, vivid way of putting what did not happen overall in the country as a whole. Um, now, I've said before this will all be familiar to people who read what I wrote uh, for the Daily Beast about the election results themselves. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it now. Uh, I think that, you know, it was more immediately embarrassing for the Republicans because they were expecting that uh, than it was for Democrats because Democrats outperformed expectations. But if you sort of take expectations out of it and just sort of look at the thing in itself, um, it was a weird, messy tie that nobody really is entitled to do much of a victory lap about. Uh, the Democrats kept depending on how Wardock's runoff goes either the exact same balance of power that they had before the Senate, 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, Kamala Harris as vice president to break ties, or maybe they went from 50-50 to 51-49, right? That would be the great victory. And uh, they actually lost control of the House, uh, which they, they had control before the election. Uh, it's nice that they didn't lose by as much <laughs> as they're expected to, but they did lose. Um so again, not really a great victory when we take the expectations question out of it. But what I wanted to hone in on when I started thinking about the article is a really specific part 
of the uh, the election, specifically a specific part of the House race um, races. So that's like even though you know the prophesied red wave did not come to pass in the country as a whole, there were parts of the state of New York where it kind of did. Uh, so in the article that um, that I, men- I mentioned that Republicans actually took all the House seats on Long Island, they made huge ro- inroads in the suburbs north of New York City, and Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul uh, won a way too close race against a wacky election denier. That, you know, I mean, there was a reason that she was bringing in the big guns, you know, your Kamala Harris's and Hillary Clinton's to campaign for her in those final days, which, you know, when it's, when it's, um, it's as close as it was in, uh, in New York, that's, uh, that's not a good sign. And the election in New York was to a very great extent about crime. Uh, the Republicans relentlessly emphasized that issue. I listened to a Chapo episode about the election where they, uh, they talked about, People at Republican rallies, you know, chanting, you know, crime, crime, crime. Uh, I, I think Matt Crispin said they were doing it as if crime had just won the Super Bowl. Uh, and um, so, you know, and, and they were kind of celebrating the fact that it wasn't more effective than it was. But, you know, it was, I mean, again, if not for these races in New York, the Democrats would still control the House. And this was the big thing they were running on. So this actually was pretty effective for them. And in general, around the country, uh, the Republicans got a fair amount of juice from this issue. Like the, this has been a big part, like along with inflation, this has been a big part of this sort of right wing case for everything's going to hell. You need to put us back in charge for the uh, the last uh, the last couple of years. And um, Considering how much juice the right is getting from it, it bothers me that progressives often seem to be unsure about how to address the issue, especially, as I say in the article, the progressives who are closest to my democratic socialist politics. All too often, the left's instinct seems to be to run away from talking about it or even to dismiss anybody who does express concern about violent crime as a purveyor of propaganda. Um and so this is the, you know, this is the thesis of uh, the article. I say a better approach would be to take working class people's very real concerns about public safety seriously, to stop trading in uh, libertarian rhetoric about getting better public services by slashing funding levels, which makes no more sense when it comes to proposals to defund the police than it does in any other area. Uh, I'll parenthetically say, I talk about this later in the article, I do want to demilitarize the police, but I I don't think the defunding call actually captures what we care about there. Um, That, you know, in fact, I think that strikes many working class voters of all races as a call for austerity that they reject. Uh, That's like, oh, you're going to slash funding for our public safety, just like you've slashed everything else. Um, Instead, I say they should focus on the core message that the most effective way to reduce the crime rate in the long run is by creating a more equal society where everyone's material needs are met. Okay, so uh, I go back at this point and uh, talk a little bit about the history of the issue and particularly the sort of change in politics of it in the Democratic Party. So I say mainstream Democrats were all about lock them up and throw away the key, tough on crime. Uh, so-called policies until the greater scheme of things about five minutes ago. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, for example, used to go on and on about what a tough prosecutor she'd been in California. President Joe Biden uh, used to routinely brag about having written the crime bill. And uh, he actually once bragged, this is in Bronco Marchetich's book, uh, Yesterday's Man, the Case Against Joe Biden. Uh, But uh, Joe Biden once bragged that the original version of the crime bill he wrote in 1991 did everything short of, quote, hanging jaywalkers, unquote. Now, the politics of that issue have changed dramatically in the last few years, especially after the national unrest following the brutal police murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, and that's a good thing. It's good that the politics on this have changed. Uh, I say the old approach was intimately tied to what's often called neoliberalism. I'm writing the Daily Beast here, so I don't just assume that everybody... um, that word is part of everybody's vocabulary, so I define it here as the revival of a more laissez-faire attitude uh, approach to economics 
even within traditional, so deregulation, et cetera, even within traditional left and liberal political parties around the world that played out between the 1970s and the 1990s. Uh, not that it ceased to exist, but I mean, that's kind of the, uh, the classic period of neoliberalism. In the United States, instead of building on the great society welfare state that LBJ had started to build in the 1960s, a bipartisan consensus was formed, which preferred to manage the social ills arising from poverty with a harsher regime of policing and incarceration. The extent to which mainstream Democrats have really reversed course for that, those kinds of, quote, tough on crime, unquote, policies, is in practice not always impressive, even on an issue as wildly popular as marijuana legalization, which remember, even a majority of grassroots Republicans support. Uh, Biden hasn't actually been able to bring himself to let anyone out of free federal prison. His recent pardon was so narrowly tailored that the only beneficiaries were people who'd already served their time. But at least Democrats aren't foaming at the mouth anymore about hanging jaywalkers. And at least in some places, some more serious reforms actually have been enacted, like, for example, the state of New York, uh, cash bail has been abolished, not entirely, but it's been eliminated for most kinds of crimes, like some particularly violent crimes. Uh, judges can still impose cash bail, but for most crimes, uh, it's been abolished. And moving away from um, sort of miserable, uh, mediocre centrists like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the actual left, um, the, you know, people who are to the left of the Democratic, you know, the Democratic Party mainstream has pushed much harder on criminal justice reform. So, for example, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of the congressional squad energetically promoted the slogan, defund the police uh, throughout 2020. Leftists who have been elected to district attorney positions in some cities like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or until recently, uh, Chase and Boudin in San Francisco have worked overtime to use prosecutorial discretion, right? That power of prosecutorial discretion they have as DAs to ensure that fewer residents of those cities end up behind bars. And an organization that some of these politicians have belonged to, even if they're not like very tightly aligned with it always in practice, the Democratic Socialists of America has gone even further. DSA has gone on record as supporting uh, the, quote, abolition, unquote, of police and prisons, you know, whatever that actually means. Okay, so um, let's let's think a little bit more about that um, that piece. Uh, I love that. Uh, Silver says in the chat, can we run the reverse argument? You see how poorly defunded the police goes. Uh, so think how poorly defunded schools would go. Um, so, uh, so, so again, going back to reading from the article, I say, full disclosure, I'm a DSA member, and I encourage people to join. Uh, even if the organization sometimes puts out statements that I find embarrassingly poorly thought out, the overwhelming majority of its time and energy goes in directions I would sign off on without reservation, like fighting for Medicare for all, like pushing for a less hawkish foreign policy, which they've you know, gotten a lot of flack for. Uh, with regard to the war in Ukraine, like keeping alive important big picture ideas about how the economic foundations of our society could be restructured in a more egalitarian direction. Uh, DSA activists have also been involved in important efforts like the unionization drives at Starbucks uh, locations around the country. And I'm not going anywhere. They'll continue to get my dues money every month. But uh, abolitionism I would argue, is a uh, about policing in prisons really is a shockingly poorly thought out idea. It's the kind of thing you only say if you're so far removed from the levers of national power that you feel comfortable never spending a minute thinking about how any of this would actually work in practice. At least in my experience, abolitionists are unable to answer the most basic follow-up questions about how public safety would work post-abolition. So, for example, would vigilantes just informally patrol their neighborhoods like George Zimmerman was doing when he killed Trayvon Martin? Because, uh, hey, if you institute that everywhere, you're going to institute it in uh, 
in uh, George Zimmerman's uh, gated community, just just like you are in other places where it's easier to imagine, uh, you know, revolutionary, you know, Red Guards or Black Panthers patrolling the streets. Um, or would there still be some sort of publicly owned entity that was in charge of law enforcement? If so, how would such an entity not just be a reformed, maybe severely reformed version of a police force? And why don't you just tell us what the differences would be so we can work on uh, reforming the police in that direction? And without some form of imprisonment, no matter how humane and minimalistic and how much we just restrict it to being a sort of last resort, uh, would the only remaining strategy without any prisons for dealing with violent criminals who pose an ongoing threat to their communities be to kill them? Because I actually am an abolitionist about the death penalty. That doesn't sound very leftist to me. Um, if you read, for example, Angela Davis's book on prison abolition, which you know people always used to recommend to me when I'd start making some of these points, exactly zero of these questions are answered. And any movement that was serious about persuading the majority of the American public to be abolitionists would have to come up with answers pithy enough for door-to-door canvassing, where you can't just say, oh, here's a pile of books that you need to read. And, you know, then you actually, you know, especially not if once people actually read them, they don't actually find any good answers to these questions. It's like the same as there's a website about uh, police abolition that, uh, like, I've seen a lot of people bring up when I answer these questions, they'll link me to, it's called Eight to Abolition, which says nothing about any of this. Uh, that the that that website uh, will, um, what it, uh, you know, what it has are basically a list of a, a bunch of short-term reforms that they say would take us closer to the goal of police abolition. And hey, I can even get bored on board with most or probably all of those reforms, but that has absolutely nothing to do with abolition. And by the way, it's also a bizarre way to use the word abolition because abolition and the historical meaning means that you want to end something immediately right now. Like that's why people didn't refer to the moderate wing of the Republican party led by Abraham Lincoln as abolitionists, right? Lincoln ran as an anti-slavery candidate, um, but his program was like slowly, you know, like stopping the expansion of slavery to new states and sort of trying to slowly squeeze out the institution with the hope that it would gradually disappear over time. And nobody called that abolitionism about slavery, nor should they have. Uh, abolitionists were people who uh, who wanted uh, to uh, who wanted to uh, uh, to get to end slavery now. You know, doesn't need to be replaced with anything. We don't need to gradually phase out the need for slavery. We should just not have slavery. That's what abolitionism actually means. Um, and so, yeah, it drives me crazy when people call themselves abolitionists and then they turn around. I wrote this a sort of cranky piece about this a couple of years ago, or I don't know, maybe it was last year. I don't remember. Time is a flat circle called uh, Prison Abolitionism and Socratic Dialogue. Uh, that I said was kind of a composite portrait of every argument that I'd ever had with somebody who called themselves an abolitionist, uh, where, you know, I, I talk about this, they'll say things like, well, nobody's saying that we can get rid of prisons tomorrow. And it's like, okay, but if we can't get rid of prisons tomorrow, then you're not an abolitionist. You're maybe a, you know, a person who hopes that one day we won't need prisons, but that's just a very different uh, position that has absolutely no right to be referred to as abolitionism. Um, okay. So I say in the article going, going back to, uh, and also I'm just, I want to know a lot more about how you think this will work whenever you do fulfill that goal or else I just don't know why we should take this seriously. I mean, if the, if we didn't have answers to basic follow-up questions about how socialism would work, I wouldn't be a socialist. Okay. Going back to the article, I say perhaps such questions would be moot in an advanced socialist society that might exist in the 23rd century when poverty is something people read about in history books. But in a country like the United States in 2022, where street crime is a real problem many working class people worry about, abolitionism sounds uncomfortably like a recipe for private security for rich people and Mad Max for everybody else. Now, I certainly want less militarized, more democratically accountable police forces, 
and smaller, more rehabilitation-focused prisons. But I'm somewhat skeptical of the idea that we could completely get rid of police and prisons, even in the 23rd century utopia just described. Uh, too many people, for example, are domestic abusers or rapists. Right? Too many affluent people right, who aren't living in poverty are domestic abusers or rapists, for example, for me to believe that economic conditions are the only source of interpersonal violence um, and thus to believe that interpersonal violence will completely disappear 100% uh, in a future advanced socialist society, even which means that even in such a society, uh, if we're not going to have anything like police or prisons, I want to know what the alternative uh, strategy for dealing with this is. But that said, I don't have any trouble believing that the main drivers of violent crime would be dramatically reduced in such a society. We have plenty of real-life evidence that it can be greatly reduced, even given steps that take us only a small part of the way there. Um, Norway, for example, uh, has uh, both a far lower rate of violent crime than we do, and by American standards, almost an absurdly more humane and minimalistic criminal justice system. I mean, sometimes... You know, people will will do these videos of like prison cells in Norway's that look like college dorm rooms, and they'll talk about how even like multiple murderers eventually get out of prison, and and it's it's sort of a novelty from an American perspective just how much less harsh their criminal justice system is. But um, the point is, they manage to have both less violent crime and a way less harsh regime of police and incarceration. Now. Uh, I just debated uh, Curtis Yarvin a few weeks ago, however long that was ago, not very long ago. Uh, yeah, I guess a little over, about, yeah, about a month ago even. And um, so I know his response would be basically some racist nonsense about how uh, Norwegians are just genetically or culturally, you know, he's a little evasive on that point, uh, more prone to being like nice people who don't do violent things than, you know, Haitians, for example, uh, to, to pick an example that came up a lot in that debate. But, you know, that's just silly bullshit. Um, I use, in the, I, I do trot out in the article something I've said many times while talking about this, which is that if you are inclined to believe that uh, Norwegians are just genetically or culturally primed to be nice people who don't do violent things, I would strongly recommend that you watch Robert Eggers' film, The Northman. Uh, you know, which will set you straight on that one. Uh, and, and really, I mean, if you look at the history of uh, Nordic social democracy, it's not something that came about, as uh, my late friend Michael Brooks once put it, because everybody went to the same Lutheran church and they just decided it would be nicer to have a big welfare state. Uh, that was This was some sort of big cultural decision they came to. Uh, it came about through really fierce class struggle. Um you know, militant industrial unions allied to uh, socialist political parties. Uh, this is something that uh, is, uh, you know, Thomas Piketty uh, talks about in one of his books. I forget which one, but I mean, like if you like Sweden, for example, at the beginning of the 20th century was often talked about in the same breath as czarist Russia as, as one of the most brutally inegalitarian countries in Europe. Uh, it's not race. It's not genetics. It's not culture. It's class struggle achieving reforms that make people's lives better. Um, at the, so I, yeah, so going on, continuing with the article, I say the reason Nordic countries were able to have their cake and eat it too on criminal justice and public safety is that strong labor unions and socialist political parties have secured reforms that even if they fall short of that sort of 23rd century end goal, take their societies in a far more economically just direction. And even if we restrict ourselves to the United States, I mean, common sense should tell us that very few people who grow up in middle-class suburbs go on to join street gangs. So in terms of, again, not every source of interpersonal violence, crimes of passion, domestic violence, rape, all those things exist for all sorts of reasons. But in terms of the main drivers of a society's violent crime rate, I mean, that's obviously linked to economics. Um, the problem for Americans, and this is a category in which I would include myself, 
who want a more humane and minimalistic criminal justice system is that we don't live in such a society right now. And the left, and the real left I'm talking about here, not just like Democrats, is way too structurally weak at the moment to take over the levers of power on a national scale to start implementing the kind of reforms that would take us in that better direction. But we can sometimes win district attorney elections in deep blue cities, and there we can, at least on a very small scale, try to chip away at the carceral state. The problem is that given that we live in a society afflicted by poverty, deep economic inequality, and all the social ills that come with these things, even defunding the police in the sense where, you know, let's let's restrict ourselves to the case where defunding isn't used as a synonym for abolition, which it is sometimes, but not usually. Um, so we're just talking about reducing budget lines, right? The police operating budget, but not to zero, is extremely unpopular with the working class people of all races who would form the base of any successful version of the left, the only possible base of any successful form of the left. So um, a recent survey uh, by uh, the... um, yeah, Schnarf says Thomas Piketty is still not exactly a bastard of socialism. Uh, I'm not actually totally sure what Thomas Piketty's uh, own views are right now. Uh, I, I think he does call himself a socialist now. Certainly when he wrote Capital in the 21st Century, he sounded like kind of a milquetoast reformist, and he wasn't even pro-Bernie in 2016, but I think he might have moved left since then. Uh, and And I believe that he... You know, he has at least embraced the label now. You could argue about, you know, like, we again, I don't know the finer details of his current politics, but the reason I'm bringing up Piketty is not because of his policy solutions. Uh, the The reason I'm bringing up Piketty is, is because he says interesting things about Swedish history in that book that I think are a good corrective to a lot of misconceptions that a lot of Americans have about this. Um, yeah, I uh, totally agree with that. Uh, Silver Harlow says the line I usually hear. Uh, yeah, that was response to Scharf. Uh, Silver Harlow in the chat says the line I usually hear from rightoids is their culture is diverse, but that strikes me as a low key racist way of blaming violence on melanin. I think that's right. I mean, I think if you, when people say that, I think you've, the follow up question you've got to ask is okay, but why? I mean, even, I mean, some of those countries are more diverse now than, you know, some Americans assume, but forget that. Like, why? is the level of diversity relevant here? Like, do you really believe that, you know, black and brown people are just sort of magically, you know, more inclined uh, towards uh, towards involvement in crime than white people? Or do you actually notice that middle-class black, you know, middle-class black kids who grow up in suburbs uh, are a hell of a lot less likely to join street gangs than, uh, than uh, poor white kids who grew up in high crime neighborhoods, um, and yeah, if you you know if you think it's culture again, just just spell out the the causal mechanism for me, right? That's always the question to ask. Okay, uh, so and I also like Silver's comment that uh, we can't replace prison with house arrest. We can't be bothered to house everyone. Um, I mean, at least like replace prison with house arrest, that would be like a fleshed out, like that would be like a real suggestion. We could start thinking about whether that's realistic or not and whether you'd exactly call that prison abolitionism or not, whatever. But I mean, at least we can, at least that'd be a real idea we could argue about. Like, but, um, usually, um, in my experience, at least people who call themselves prison abolitionists kind of refuse to spell out what they mean. Okay. Um, a recent survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that only 17% of black voters want to decrease police funding in their neighborhoods. Uh, twice as many, 34%, actually want to increase police presence in their neighborhoods, and a majority want to keep it as is. And this is a very consistent result. I mean, I, again, this is like a recent example, so that's the one I link in the piece. But this is a very consistent result of like every survey ever on this stuff that it is always ends up being the case that again, like just restricted ourselves to black voters. So the, the subset of voters who are supposed to be most helped by defunding, uh, they 
an overwhelming majority is consistently reject defunding. Uh, that, um, that, you know, when the question is always like, do you think that, you know, the police presence in your neighborhood is too much, not enough, or, or about right as is, too much is by far always the answer of a small minority of respondents. The overwhelming majority say either it's, it's right as is or uh, it should actually be more. Um, and I think you have to grapple with that. I think you have to take it seriously. I think if you, I think if you think your, your politics are for the benefit of the working class, it doesn't mean you have to subscribe to every majority opinion, but I think you want to think long and hard about why that is at least. Uh, and, and, you know, when you think about how to, how to argue for, for your, for your message, you know, you don't want to just ignore and dismiss what working class people are actually saying. Okay. Um, so what I say in the article is in a larger context of a neoliberal hellscape where crime is far worse than it is in places like Norway, reform-minded local DAs trying their best to chip away at the carceral state are often faced with difficult trade-offs. If you decide not to prosecute a given offender, they might do something violent the next day, and every time that happens, you've added fuel to the fire of right-wing efforts to discredit any efforts at reform. On the other hand, this is the other half of the dilemma – if you decide to err on the side of prosecution and pushing for jail time in every case where you're at all worried about that, then you end up prosecuting so many people that what was the point of electing a reformist DA in the first place? You're not actually chipping away at your city's contribution to mass incarceration. Um, a lot of leftist libertarians believe that prisons are all full of, uh, of people of nonviolent drug offenders, but unfortunately, uh, that's actually... Uh, a tiny, tiny fraction of of the prison population, which is why if you want to reduce mass incarceration, which I certainly do, um, there's a certain amount of that you can do by, you know, again, I think we should have more lenient sentences for pretty much across the board, that the whole spectrum should be lenient. Again, I like the, the Nordic model of, uh, of criminal justice way better than the American model. And I think we long term, we can go further than the Nordic model as we moved from social democracy to actual socialism. But um, but if you're going to reduce the prison population, that has to you know that has to go along with changing the material conditions that lead to such a high crime rate in the first place. Um, even a policy as straightforward as ending cash bail is fraught with pitfalls. As a socialist, I say in the article, I abhor the very idea that one suspect could end up rotting in jail while they wait for trial because of a lack of money while another could go free immediately if they could scrounge up the cash. Uh, but the bail reform law in New York creates new problems. In an effort, quote, to preserve uh, the presumption of innocence, reduce racial biases against defendants, unquote, the law specifically prevents judges from considering, quote, their subjective view of a person's dangerousness when deciding what release conditions to set, unquote. So again, for some of the most violent crimes, uh, then they are, you know, then they are allowed to set cash bail. But uh, for a lot of crimes that might actually involve some, you know, element of, of violence, uh, the sort of, uh, you know, think about kind of like strong arm, you know, like like purse snatching and stuff like that. Uh, they're generally not allowed to uh, to to consider that. Now. I can understand why legislators were moved to impose that condition, because without it, the reform would have had a lot less teeth um, and would be easier for judges to ignore in practice. But with it, the predictable consequence is that sometimes even pretty clearly dangerous suspects have to be put back on the streets because the crime they're being accused of isn't quite bad enough uh, for a cash bail to be imposed. And whenever this um, this happens, this uh, whenever this leads to bad consequences the authoritarian lock them up and throw away the key right wing gets a new talking point. Now, to be clear, I don't claim to have all the answers to these dilemmas. And bottom line, if I lived in Philadelphia or San Francisco, I would have absolutely voted for Krasner or Boudin. I haven't seen convincing statistical evidence that their approach leads to worse uh, outcomes overall, the, the harsher decisions of more mainstream DAs in comparable cities. And without any such evidence, I would much rather err on the side of re-elected people who are at least trying to do the right thing 
that empower uh, cynical opportunists trying to score tough on crime points. But I do worry that some of my fellow leftists who also don't have great answers about how to navigate these trade-offs end up lashing out at anyone who raises legitimate concerns about crime by accusing them of spreading propaganda. Uh, look at some of the pushback to Anna Kasparian, Young Turks. Uh, well, many of the politicians who spent 2020 talking about defund have quietly dropped that terminology in response to public backlash. So I have a link in the article to a uh, recent interview uh, with um, to a recent interview with uh, with AOC by Ryan Grimm, uh, where she uh, she has uh, she. Uh, where she says, well, let's not talk about either pro-defund or anti-defund. Let's use a different frame. It's like, well, hold on. You were talking about defund a couple of years ago. And, you know, to be fair, I mean, I, I was on board with that too. Uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think we have to be willing to have these conversations about whether it really makes sense. Um, so, but while many of these politicians have quietly dropped that terminology, they and their supporters still tend to bristle at any criticism of the slogan. In the absence of a more compelling message, they all too often default to just not talking about crime at all. Any expression of alarm over recent upticks in the crime rate is met with the response that the rate is still much lower than it was in decades past. Uh, and I, I link in the article to an article that Eric Levitz wrote in New York Magazine where he points out that progressives will rightly reject structurally parallel arguments in other contexts. So here's the quote from Levitz. He says, yes, America's murder rate is lower than it was in the early 1990s, but so is the percentage of Americans who lack health insurance. In 2018, progressives did not lambast the media for covering a modest increase in the uninsured rate because things were still better than they've been in 1998. Rather, we pointed to the negligible uninsured rates of other developed countries and declared that the performance of America's healthcare system uh, is a persistent, remains a persistent scandal. If our nation's uninsured rate should be judged by the standard of other wealthy countries, why shouldn't its murder rate be judged by the same metric? As Levitt suggests, and I see I've got some people in the queue, I'm going to try to take at least a few of them uh, before we win the room, a better approach would be to emphasize that many policies the left supports have been proven to reduce the rate of violent crime. Most obviously, tightening requirements for handgun purchases has yielded dramatic reductions in firearm homicide rates. More interestingly, Policies like minimum wage hikes and increases in the earned income tax credit that funnel more money to the people who need it most have been shown to reduce recidivism among ex-convicts. Unsurprisingly, given the role of addiction, mental health problems, and financial desperation in fueling various kinds of crime, increased access to health care has also been shown to reduce the crime rate. So last two paragraphs of the article, I'm just going to read these as is. I say the left can't afford to see this issue to our political enemies. And telling working class people in high crime neighborhoods not to worry about it because the problem used to be worse in the 90s is a recipe for disaster. Instead, we should be laser focused on the simple and true message that America's crime rate is downstream of brutal levels of economic inequality. The recipe for safe streets a human criminal justice system and a population with hope for the future is to move toward a society that distributes resources more equitably and meets everyone's material needs. That's the message the left should be shouting from the rooftops. Okay. Um, I, as I said, I'm going to try to take uh, at least as many of the callers as possible. I'm going to uh, go a little bit of out of order because I want to, try to get some of the callers who uh, have um, who you know who I don't hear from a lot in here so uh, I'm actually going to start with Sean and then got to go back to the beginning of the queue so uh, Sean Jones what is on your mind oh, no. uh, yeah, oh there sorry. we go I hear you yeah um, yeah, well, see, this is the problem, though. Like, we can talk about crime, but that's not actually the problem. The problem is poverty. 
Mm-hmm. And the real problem is, is that at the end of the day, the Democratic Party nor the Republican Party actually have any concern about fixing structural poverty mm-hmm. because poverty is the mechanism that they use to keep people in such desperate situations that they have a desperate workforce that will work the jobs that nobody wants to work for a wage that you know barely gets them by. So what we're really talking about is a structural system that allows poverty to be the cattle prod for the entire public and gives the people the authority or the least authority and power that they have over the population. And that's the real key issue here. And the real key issue here is that when, even when you're talking about Bernie Sanders and AOC, what they are now doing is now they are pretty much, they, they, they give voices to kind of like the more progressive, quote unquote, people mm-hmm. in the country, which pacifies them to think that there's any actual mechanism of government while they continue to be silent on the very issue that, you know, I just just stated, which is that poverty is the mechanism of control that the elites use to have power over everybody. And at this point in time, I would say Bernie Sanders, AOC, the squad are completely beholden to that very system of power and very structure of power. And I think that inherently is the major problem that we're dealing with. They're all a part of the corruption and they're all part of the evil. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I do have some disagreements at the end, but I agreed with everything you said up until then. Uh, I, I think that the, um, you know, I think that, um, like what you're really raising at the end is a question about political strategy, right? Like what is it that the, that the left can, uh, can do to sort of break through it's like current, uh, current powerlessness, uh, is so, you know, do we sort of work within the democratic party, even though that's definitely a party that's controlled by our political enemies, but that's where you can sometimes, you know, win, uh, ballot lines and, uh, and, you know, you can sometimes achieve some things or should you start a third party? Should you just do, you know, non-electoral activism, uh, and, and, and focus on that. Uh, and these are, these are just giant, um, questions that, you know, that, that, you know, leftists have argued about for a long time. But what I what I want to sort of emphasize here, and I'm just going to uh, go on to the next caller, just because I want to try to get everybody, if at all possible. Uh, like I said, I wanted to make sure we started with the person who I, I don't think I've heard from before on the show, unless I'm forgetting, in which case my apologies. But um, but what I want to emphasize here uh, before before we go on to Thomas is that this is um, like there are two different discussions. There's, there's the the discussion about political strategy where we might have disagreements um, that, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you watch the video, I just showed you my Bernie Sanders shirt. You know, I, I do think that for all the very legitimate criticisms you can make of these politicians, I, I do think that, uh, that they are, you know, the sort of one place where there is any kind of like promise or potential for building up something new within, uh, you know, within current configurations. Uh, but that's a different question for the one in the article, which is about goals. Like, uh, what should the message be? And, and, and how, you know, like, uh, how, like, what is our solution to these issues? Should we just not talk about crime because we have nothing to say about it? Or do we, uh, or, or do we talk about it and emphasize that the real underlying issue is about poverty? And there, I completely agree with Sean. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, Thomas, um, Let's uh, let's take. Oh no! Hi Ben, can you hear me? Hey, I can hear you. Yep. Cool. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, of course. What's on your mind? Uh, okay, give me one second. Sorry, I wrote this question down. Sure. Easier that way, I think. Uh, all right. Um, in regards to differences in incarcerate in incarceration rates. Yeah. How do we factor in the very different roles the U.S. and Scandinavia? playing in the international system of capital. Mm -hmm. If neoliberalism was not merely a policy choice, but the outcome of the crisis of Keynesian Fordist system, Mm -hmm. you seem to advocate a return to, in which the new left fought against, then can neoliberalism, and and by extension, the mass incarceration that is a part of it, simply be reversed by electing the right candidates? Mm -hmm. Would a socialist politics point us in a different way? Right. Great question. Um, this is, uh, I, I will say, uh, we're, we're kind of once again talking here about, uh, about strategy. Uh, but, uh, but I, I do, um, 
you know, but I do want to say just a couple of things about it uh, before we go on to, uh, to Schnarf. And again, I know I'm busting through the caller queue here, but I just want to make sure I take everybody who's called in so nobody's not getting addressed. I hope everybody is okay with that, understands it. But uh, just, just real briefly, uh, before, before I start talking to Schnarf, I just want to say, um, I think, so, so the question is, is neoliberalism simply a policy choice and uh, can it be addressed, um, can it be addressed simply by, uh, by elected different candidates? Uh, I think it's not entirely a policy choice. Um, it's, it is to a, to a certain extent. I mean, we don't want to be sort of um, like so sort of consumed with a kind of functional version of functionalist version of Marxist explanations that we, we kind of miss um, actual historical variables and like the sort of, um, you know, and, and, and we kind of treat things as being much more deterministic than they really are. Uh, but I don't think it is entirely policy choice. In particular, I, I do think that there's, you know, there is a point. Um, I don't think we really reached this in the United States. You know, I think that there are reasons in terms of the sort of uh, balance of class forces, why, uh, you know, why that turn happened uh, when it did. But I also don't think that in the United States, we come anywhere close to the outer limits of, you know, the sort of Keynesian Florida stuff that you're, you're talking about. Uh, but, uh, but I do think that those limits exist, right? In other words, uh, I don't actually just advocate a return to Keynesian Florida stuff. I advocate uh, collective ownership and workers' control of the uh, means of fair production. I've been very clear on that. I think uh, social democracy can be a step in that direction. It could also be a road to nowhere, and that depends on what happens in terms of class struggle. I think, you know, in Sweden in the 70s, for example, I think you're, you're talking about a society that really had got into the outer limits of what could be accomplished by social democracy within capitalism, what the system could, could really tolerate, uh, because it cut so far into, you know, profit rates, the constant strikes, all this stuff. And, um, and there are really, for structural reasons, I think they were really forced with a, uh, uh, they were really f forced with a choice between going further, like going all the way and overcoming capitalism and retreating and losing at least parts of what they'd achieved, which is what happened. Uh, and I think that, you know, you have to get to, I mean, I, I, I mean, ultimately you, uh, you can't run, uh, until you've walked. You probably can't walk until you've crawled. Uh, I, I do think you have to start with social democracy realistically. Uh, but I do think that uh, once you, you kind of get to the limits of what can be achieved there, if you don't want to lose a lot of what you've already gained, uh, I do think you have to go on from social democracy to actual socialism. I'd strongly recommend my friend Bhaskar Sankara's book, The Socialist Manifesto, uh, where he talks about some of this there. Uh, but I think I'm going to, uh, with that, I'm going to go to Schnarf uh, so we can keep getting through some of those questions and comments. So uh, Schnarf, what is on your mind tonight? I think I think going back to Piketty, I think what's yeah. really important, and, I, and I'll bring this quote from Marx, which I think sums it up, is the more antag antagonistic character comes to light, the more economists, the scientific representatives of bourgeois production find themselves in conflict with their own theory. The problem with a person like Piketty is that he's never had any kind of an ironclad position. And his yeah. positions in 2014 become very different than what he starts to go towards later on with his other books, right? Yeah. But the idea here is, is that I think that's more aligned with the idea of attracting a certain crowd. But at the end of the day, Mr. Piketty is not a socialist. He's in, in by the definition of socialism, which, which you just mentioned, which is seizing the means of production for people, Right. I think what it is is more hype than it is anything else. And I think if we don't actually go after the academics and the voices that become the the ideological backbone for political movements, then you don't have anything. So what does the left really need? The left needs two things. One, yeah. a very solid pair of balls and an actual ideological premise to coalesce around. Yeah. And um, Piketty is garbage. <laughs> Well, Might look, uh, all right, fair enough. Uh, so uh, I do, so uh, so first, um, you know, I think Piketty is, is certainly, um, you know, I would be shocked if even at this point his political evolution, he's anything like a Marxist. And I've, I'm all for criticizing people who aren't Marxists and saying they should be Marxists. 
and uh, and certainly criticizing some of the sort of uh, ideas he had in 2014 that I think you and I would probably have very similar criticisms of. Again, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know fully where he's at now. Uh, I actually started to read a pretty recent book by him, the brief, a brief history of inequality, but I need to go back to that and finish it. Uh, but the the point for which I'm bringing up Piketty in this context is not like Thomas Piketty, who's right about everything, so you should agree with him about everything, uh, says such and such, you know, this is the word. Uh, the point of bringing up Piketty for is that um, – is that what he wrote, you know, is, is a sort of um, good corrective. It's a good place to send people to learn about the real history of Swedish social democracy and how it came about and, and how that's different from what a lot of Americans uh, assume. I, I hope that was a good answer and I moved the ball forward a little bit. I did just repeat myself too much from earlier, but uh, I want to go to our last caller for tonight, Eric. What's on your mind, Eric? Hey, Ben, I've got um, just two quick questions here. Yep. Um, How do you feel about – occasionally you hear this argument about like public health squads versus police. How do you feel about that idea as well as uh, there was lots of discussion about, oh, well, police unions, uh, they're the bad unions compared to all the rest of the unions. Uh, My Uh thought is that this is really counterproductive. I get the sense from your arguments about uh, comparing defunding the police to defunding education that you might think it's a bad idea, but I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll start with the second question about police unions, because, uh, because I think that it's because, uh, because I'm going to have less to say about it uh, and it's going to be a less interested answer. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll try to end on a more interested note than this. Uh, I'm not totally sure what my view is there. I, I do suspect that probably there's an overemphasis on the police union issue. Uh, certainly, um, certainly, police unions do sometimes take like very bad and politically reactionary positions on um, on you know issues that I care about with regard to kinds of criminal justice reform that I would support. Um, like I, I think that it should be. I want police forces that are much more democratically accountable because because um, police do exercise a certain kind of power over ordinary citizens, and I don't want people to exercise unaccountable power. That's that's you know, in a lot of ways, that's the basis of my socialism. Uh, so I am um, so so certainly there are. You know there are plenty of positions that uh, police unions tend to take that I hate. Uh, I I want it to be much easier to take bad cops off the streets, uh, for example. Uh, I I I I you know I want them to have to wear body cams. You know all that stuff. Um, now, does that mean that like this is just a kind of public employee that like shouldn't be unionized? I don't, I wouldn't want to go there. I think that's probably a a, a really bad precedent uh for uh for socialists to uh to be in favor of setting but i don't know that any of that adds up to a sort of completed interested answer about what i think about the police union issue um i i do think i do suspect that like look politicians who have no problem whatsoever say no to any other kinds of unions if they're saying yes to police unions on some of these issues, that's that's not that's not because the police unions are so powerful necessarily. That's because for their own reasons, uh, politicians uh, want to uh, to say yes to that. Uh, those are just kind of my scattered thoughts off the top of my head. Um, on uh, the uh, on the first uh, the first part of um, of your question uh, about the public safety squads, um, or public health squads. Actually, can you, can you say that first part again? Let me make sure I'm following you. Yeah, for sure. So sometimes there's this discussion of how for particularly for nonviolent or, um, public health related matters. So especially with homeless people or for, um, people with drug issues, there's this idea that, we should actually separate this out from the police force mm-hmm. towards people who are maybe not necessarily armed, maybe not necessarily um, just just a separate institution. So I guess, do you feel like we're just sort of recreating the police in like a different with a different name, yeah. or do you think this is a substantial um, new policy idea? 
I got you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of questions about how that would work. Um, like, I'm not necessarily a, unfriendly to the idea that for certain category, like categories of of crime, the first call shouldn't be to a armed police officer. Um, that you know, if if there's like a uh that you know that you know that the sort of that the sort of call of first resort should be to something else now i think by the way on the defunding discussion something i didn't say in the article uh which was already you know on the long end for for the daily beast but uh but i have said elsewhere is that uh i think people often have kind of delusional ideas about how much money there is in police budgets because i think maybe they have delusional ideas of how much money there is in municipal budgets in general. Um, like in uh, an article I wrote in 2020, uh, I, I did some back of the napkin math and uh, found uh, back of the napkin, back of the envelope math and found that uh, you could reduce the operating budget of the New York police department, which is one of the best funded police departments anywhere. I mean, it's, it's really bloated in some ways uh, you could reduce it to zero. And that wouldn't even be enough money to uh, end the funding disparity between the best funded and worst funded public schools in New York. Uh, never mind hire even a single counselor or social worker. You know, start to equip, you know, your uh, your your public safety squad. So, so I think that uh, that's one of the one of my many problems with that slogan. I think that like just thinking in terms of moving money around the sort of crumbs that people have to play with downstream in city budgets downstream of. Um, national decisions in our neoliberal hellscape like is just not going to get any of this stuff done. That's just a side note. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that if we're talking, I mean, I would worry that a lot of city governments as they currently exist would want to like subcontract this out to uh, to private companies without very high standards and et cetera. I think it's very easy to see scenarios where this would become not much different. But like, look, if we sort of imagined um, – a really well-funded, well-thought-out attempt where we could, uh, you know, we could like find enough, I don't know, counselors, therapists, uh, social workers to to sort of fill our public safety squad. So that was like a, just a different number that, you know, that was, I don't know, nine nine ten instead of nine eleven or something that you would call if you wanted to call them for some situation and then you'd, you'd save nine eleven for the more violent stuff. Um I would, I would just want to know, like, okay, so do the people, the squads, do they, uh, like, are they going to be authorized to use force? Um, if, because, like, sometimes when they come to these situations, these, these things will deteriorate to the point where that's going to be a real question. And if they're not authorized to use force, does that just mean that you, you know, you, you end up like they just call nine one one? That you know that that's still like, in other words you know, you're not really talking about a replacement. You're talking about maybe like a first line of defense and then the cops in the second line of defense, which actually might be better. I mean, if you're at least sort of have that actual police interaction further down the line and at least some of these situations that wouldn't come up, you know, that, that could be, you know, I mean, that could be an improvement. Um, but also I would just, I mean, my, my big point about all this would just be that if we we're going to get to the point where we could actually have public health squads, uh, we would have to uh, engage in massive economic redistribution just for that, because you have to tax the fuck out of the rich to uh, to get uh, to to get city budgets to have anything like the funds they would need to actually have have like being in the public health squad be a job that anybody would sign up for. Uh, so, so I think it, I mean I think it's an interesting question. I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure what I think because I I need to like know a lot more details about what this would actually look like. I don't think it's a, I don't think it would be a total replacement for policing, but I think it might be a nice thing to have as like the first resort uh, if you could do this in a reasonable way. But I think it would have to be accompanied by a lot of other changes to, uh, to how the stuff happens to work. So uh, good, good questions. Both of those hard questions. I like it. Um, Good calls in general tonight. Uh, we are going to have to uh, cut off there for uh, for tonight. Um, I am uh, going to be on the uh, Modern Day uh, Debate Channel tonight uh, at 
in about an hour and a half at eight Eastern uh, to talk about completely different stuff, uh, to actually take a break from politics for an evening and spend an argument about philosophy, uh, doing a uh, debate on the existence of God should be fun. Uh, always, always a nice, uh, nice to change things up a little bit that way. Uh, so people can check that out. We'll probably repost that on the Give Them an Argument YouTube channel on Sunday, I think is what we've got it on the schedule for right now. Uh, and then we are going to be back on that main show on YouTube for our, uh, what we're calling our season finale because we're going to have to take December mostly off um, with Matt McManus to talk about John Stuart Mill and socialism. Uh, so that's uh, that's next Monday. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, I'm about to be gone for a few days, to, uh, doing some travel for Thanksgiving, unless anything changes, which it might. Uh, but, uh, but so probably the next day that I could realistically do a call in is Saturday, but I am going to endeavor to do that then. Uh, if I'm, uh, if I'm not too wiped out, uh, cause I'm going to be getting back early Saturday morning, uh, but if, if I've got some sleep and I'm in a position to do it, I will do a call in on uh, Saturday afternoon. I will see people then. 